Berlin Sports. Hello and welcome to another Sportscast, a Boxing Day special Sportscast, and I hope you've enjoyed your festivities. Ho, ho, ho! Happy Christmas to one and all. This is indeed Sportscast. We're here for you on your Boxing Day evening, 6 through 7 p.m. on the multiple award-winning Sports Sportscast show. And tell you what, we love the fact that this is your show each and every single bit as much as it is ours. And this week's special has been provided by you. And it's what most appropriate, really. Literally, we're on Boxing Day, reminiscing about Boxing Day bangers, those classic memories, those crucial matches, those critical goals that have happened in uh, Boxing Day action over the Christmas pasts. Looking forward to getting into that with my friend, the ever-legendary machine, Jason McKenna. And indeed, it is befitting upon me to welcome him to the show and again say a huge, hearty, Santa claus styly ho, 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 Merry Christmas to you, Jason. How are you? Uh, a Merry Christmas to you, Tony. I'm feeling on top of the world at the moment. I know uh, I'm, I'm trying to maintain positivity in terms of these COVID times. And, you know, I look at the positives. I've got a happy, healthy family. I've tucked into a nice meal. So, yeah, I, I get that obviously 2020 is very different. And I don't want to either paint uh, paint over other people's kind of hardships. Mm-hmm. But I'm counting my blessings at the moment. And I wish, honestly, everybody listening, I hope that this brings a little bit of Boxing Day joy uh, to you all and find you as well as you possibly can be. But on this note as well, you know, I feel sad because obviously... Boxing Day bangers, we're talking about some of the best uh, kind of matches in history. But these kind of Boxing Day bangers actually have very close links to to my life because from a very young age, uh, again, because of my links to my dad actually working at Mm -hmm. Arsenal, but also to a lot of clubs being near me in London, I'm not too fussy. I just like a good football match at the end of the day. Boxing Day bangers. I've been there for a few of them. You know, I've I've been there on some of the great matches. So usually tradition has been in my house that you're either working at a football club on Boxing Day or you're actually at one of the matches. So uh, a lot of these memories that we're going to talk about today, I was actually physically present at some of them. Uh, and if not, there's some good kind of uh, comparisons. I don't know if you've got a comparison in your life, Tony, of of like almost a, a festive thing that you do surrounding sport every year. Great question. I'm excited, Jason, to hear these anecdotes of yours as they pertain to the Boxing Day bangers of recent festive times. Um, for me, uh, not so much. I was talking to my dad earlier today. There was an old tradition going back many moons now where... Um, there was a Boxing Day tradition in rugby where Leicester Tigers, who have been the, in previous years, almost the Manchester United, or in our modern day context, I suppose you could say um, the Man City of the rugby world. And we were speaking in our last um, conversation, Jason, about some of the traditions about the Barbarians Rugby Club. And one of those traditions is that on a Boxing Day, faded out in the professional era, um, they would go to Welford Road 
and the the bar bars would take on Leicester Tigers at the mighty Welford Road. And so, um, you know, my mum and dad would always go. The family would come from far afield. It was always a bit of a tradition. Uh, Feels like a distant memory now as life and indeed sport has progressed. But yeah, it's awesome to hear that and remember that. Indeed, this very day, I was actually just talking to my father along those lines. But before we drill into your exciting and emotive memories of Boxing Day classics, I first of all feel compelled putting on my award-winning journalistic hat slightly here and say we've had many a conversation, Jason, about uh, reasons and the whys and wherefores of why England haven't won anything post-1966, haven't we? I'm not going to say too much any further on that because there's plenty of documents out there, plenty of podcasts that Jason and I have been involved with over the years on that very theme. Check them out. They are compelling. But I've got to ask you this one, Jason. England, of course, is notable throughout all of Europe as being the only major European league not to take a winter break. Instead, it's a hellaciously jam-packed period, uh, the, fest- uh, the festive fixture list. It brings up classic matches, and I can't wait to unpack some of them with you. Great memories, of course. But is this a hindrance on the national team? Again, this is a common denominator that we haven't yet drilled into. So just setting aside momentarily before we embrace these wonderful memories... I wonder, Jason, to what extent do you think that's a, there is a case there and that England maybe should fall in line with the rest of the continent in having some kind of a football hiatus during this festive period? I think for me, uh, there's, there's two trains, uh, strains of thought to this argument and I totally get the kind of argument of protecting players and, and I'm very on side with that. Uh, there's the romantic element in me, though, that I love the kind of Boxing Day mm-hmm. festive fixtures. This is a time where traditionally people are off. They can spend time with their family and so that they, they can go to these matches. And, and again, like I'm, I'm linking this to myself, but it was like one of the only times that my dad, my granddad and I would all be kind of able to go to things together because they're working through the rest of the yeah. year. So there's that element to it. But you've hit the nail on the head that there is this real element and it's more towards injury and fatigue where this hugely compact schedule actually is of the detriment. There there is no question about it. Um, You see a lot of injuries over this period. Uh, I can't remember the, the numbers off the top of my head, but you will especially see it pronounced in this season when we've not had a proper kind of pre-season because of COVID, mm-hmm. because of lack of fitness. Um, but in seasons gone by, January to February time, you see a huge incidence. And normally it's hamstring related because it's the kind of high intensity runs uh, that those kind of lower uh, leg muscles. So, you know, th- th- it really trials the body. And then there's also mm-hmm. the psychological fatigue you know, playing all those hours, maybe not getting to see your family long enough. It might make you question, why the hell am I playing football when I've got to be, you know, training and and traveling across the country on Boxing Day? Um, Mm -hmm. So there is a very real element. And you kind of see this in Germany, France, Spain, uh, across the continent. Now, the question is, is we do now have 
a mid-season winter break in in inverted commas because it normally comes around February now. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit later. And I think, again, it's a fair point from you that maybe it's too little too late. Maybe it should be at Christmas or they should spread out the games a little bit more. Uh, I've got another thought and feeling on this, a third one. Uh, and my, my feeling towards this, this might be more controversial than anything that mm. I've said uh, for a while. But I think they should scrap the EFL Cup. I don't think it serves mm. any purpose apart from blooding you for the the bigger teams, for the younger te- uh, for the lower teams. It's an opportunity to win a trophy. But when was the last time that a team outside of the Premier League won the EFL Trophy? And realistically, just super quickly to cut you short there, Jason. I love this slightly <laughs> controversial thought, but I'm looking forward to. New Year, talking to friend of the show, Cliff Crown, Radlett's own Cliff Crown, the chairman of Brentford Football Club. And I would suspect right about now, he and the bees would be uh, somewhat disagreeing with that point of view. <laughs> Obviously, they are just in the semi-finals, but they conquered another Premier League force in Newcastle. Just one more game away from another return to Wembley for the bees. So totally, actually respect your view. And I think pragmatically, it's a very compelling argument, but I must confess, I am looking forward to providing for you, the listeners, in the new year, a new fresh conversation with friend of the show, Cliff Crown, and I'm sure his opinions on that are going to be fascinating. I want your views, though, of course. Remember, it's your show, each and every single bit, as much as it is ours. Your thoughts on Boxing Day. Uh, Boxing Day bangers is what we're calling today's show. I'm sure you've got loads of memories want to hear from you tweet us at verulam sport although these memories are sweet can't wait to hear some of jason's anecdotes coming up for you uh, but also is it the case that maybe we are sacrificing players career longevity and england's success on the altar of festive football fun get your views in tweet at verulam sport email us to sport at radioverulam.com remember this is your show each and every single bit as much as it is as excited as always to hear from you just before we unleash the machine, Jason McKenna in his first uh, boxing day banger. And I'm sure also linking it to uh, those beautiful memories that, you know, you simply cannot put a price on uh, really, really enthused to hear from that. Of course, there's going to be lots of Premier League goals banged in today and the Premier League prediction league continues. Of course it does. Remember, we're challenging you, you punditry guru, you, you punditry genius that you are. I know you are. Get involved and improve upon us here in the Verum Sports Premier League Predictions Leagues. As always, just a super quick recap on the rules of the game. Chalk yourself up three points for any fixture when you get the exact correct scoreline. The exact correct scoreline equals three points. Give yourself one point if you get the right result but maybe you're out by a goal or two in the actual scoreline. So one point if you get the correct result, but out by the goal or two here or there in the scoreline itself. And nothing at all, nil point, should you get it completely wrong. But I know, I know that won't happen to you because you are a punditry genius. And I'd love you to show just that being the case. So as always, tweet us at Verulam Sports, email us sports at radioverulam.com with your Premier League predictions throughout this festive uh, packed uh, Christmas agenda. 
and of course, right throughout the Premier League campaign. Before I whip it across to Jason to unleash his first Boxing Day banger, it's befitting upon me to at least give you the current scores on the doors in our very own Verium Sports Premier League Predictions League. And it is supremely tight. Uh, at the bottom at the moment, still bringing up the rear, but gaining ground. Neil Stock, our newest recruit, has moved up to 74 points. In fourth at the moment, it's the machine himself, Jason McKenna, on 83 points. But just a few weeks ago, he was in the lead, and that just goes to show you how quickly things can swing. He's eminently in contention, as indeed am I, currently in third on 86 points. The voice of the Saints, Graham Griffin. Make sure you listen to him all season as the Saints look to build on their impressive start to their uh, Vanarama League South campaign. Graham Griffin, the voice of the Saints. Check him out on the red button live, uh, listen live button all year long. And he has 90 points and then still in the lead, but it's a close one, as I say. The ace man, Matthew Turvey, has 92 points. But again, I know you could do better. I can see your face almost sniggering at us with our meagre points offerings. So show us. Prove your punditry genius to us. Tweet at Verulam Sports. Email sports at radioverulam.com. Get involved. I want to hear your Premier League predictions because I know you get them right each and every single week. But right here, right now, for you on your Boxing Day, it's time to go to the machine himself, Jason McKenna, to provide for us all his first Boxing Day banger. What you got for us, Jason? <laughs> yes, Tony. And this one, I said these are kind of linked to memories and kind of great efforts over the years. And this first one was actually one that I was present at. I was a young six-year-old Arsenal fan, fresh-faced. But like I said, it was one of the opportunities that I got to go to the football with my dad when he wasn't working. And it was a... <laughs> Jason, really quickly, before to, before you really get going with this have to ask you, did six-year-old Jason have an Arsenal shirt that was fitting or were you still in the double extra large uh, <laughs> one from the few seasons ago we discussed previously? So this, uh, actually, I did have a normal size shirt. So the one that I described to you before was uh, a Dennis Burkamp one and it was huge. It was way too big. Uh, probably it would fit me now uh, rather than back then. Uh, but in this one, it was it was kind of like one of those things that you'd see on Instagram or or uh, on social media of like, oh my God, isn't that cute? Uh, my dad and I had exactly matching Arsenal shirts, big and small. It was a great moment. And I remember, I just remember the day, the smells, the sounds, all of it, picking up my um, my programme, sitting in Highbury. It was, it was beautiful. And, you know, at that time, I hadn't developed my traditions like getting a burger and this and that. Just for little young me, it was kind mm -hmm. of an overawing experience to be there. And Highbury seemed like a cathedral back then. It was huge. Mm -hmm. It was full of majesty. And, you know, matching the kind of regal corridors decked with marble, you saw this amazing display, almost a palais, uh, ballet on the pitch, because what Arsenal produced that, that day was fantastic. Uh, you know, so like I said, this was a family tradition, and I think we kind of kept it since then, of Boxing Day being an all-important day of going to the football or, or watching it. We rarely missed it, and it, it kind of all started from here. And this was a great game. You know, this was Arsenal kind of in their pomp of the Wenger years. As described, I think maybe a podcast or two ago, this is the 2000s. This is kind of the dawn of peak 
Wenger ball. And this was actually the 50th appearance for Thierry Henry, a man who was going to write himself into the Arsenal record books. And he did that day, in a sense. But, you know, it was a pretty normal first-half performance for Arsenal. They went 1-0 up, an Henry goal. Then, after half-time, 49th minute, Patrick Vieira got on the scoreline, the midfield maestro. He was looking good. Then, 53 minutes into the game, there was a little bit of worries. The Foxes had a lifeline of a goal, but after that, maybe it spurred them on. Arsenal went into turbo charge. They mm -hmm. went on to score four more goals. Lundberg, Henri completing a hat-trick, and again, kind of reminiscing back to that Everton memory, even Adams was on the scoreline. For some reason, he just thought he'd get involved. This was probably uh, an explanation of how dominant Arsenal were in that match. Coming towards the end of the match, probably the Leicester fans were happy that the whistle was going because I remember at the time mm -hmm. there was oohs, there was ahs, there was all this kind of euphoria in the crowd. The people next to me were, were singing, we can get seven uh, and all things like that. So it, it, was a, it was a really kind of great day out for me. And I just remember as well, because I was quite small, you know, as, as a six-year-old, the, the, the normal thing in the football stadium is you get on your feet. But for me, standing on my feet, I'm dwarfed by all these adults. Luckily, luckily, with the hybrid way it was set up, I could nip past all the people and run into the kind of, how would I describe it, the stairwell, and I could stand yeah. on the stairs and watch, and if the goal went in or not. It was brilliant fun. It probably kept me really fit and active because I was running back between uh, and all this. It was such fun, and, and I was close enough that my dad could keep an eye on me. But that, I remember that was a big part of the memory as well, that I almost felt like I was included in the goals because I was running my little heart out Brilliant. just to see each and every goal. But as I mentioned there, it was a huge, huge game for Thierry Henry. He got hat-trick, but this was his first ever Arsenal hat-trick. It was a huge milestone. First of eight Arsenal hat-tricks, am I, I th right I think saying? so. I think you're right there, Tony. I mean, he went on to score quite a few, but this was almost the... The, the one that really indoctrinated him into the Arsenal faithful. Mm -hmm. And his start at Arsenal, I remember this being a thing of, when's Henri going to score? Is he going to... Uh, yeah. Arsenal paid big money, you know. Back then, it didn't look like a lot in the comparison to now. I think it was 11 million. But actually, at the time, it was it was a huge chunk of the, the turnover mm. of the team at the time. I think the team only had a turnover of about... 50 or 60 million it was mm. it was that kind of a massive massive chunk of what they earned obviously it was a great investment but yeah for this one I had to bring it as a Boxing Day banger and I do have some other memories around Boxing Day but also New Year's Day those kind of festive fixtures that I'll talk about a little bit later but I had to mention this one being there physically present on the day bringing back those beautiful, beautiful memories, Tony, of a 6-1 drubbing of Leicester in 2000. Jason, I love that because it's kind of a natural progression from the last conversation that we had. It was almost that we described <laughs> beautifully for yourself the inception of your love affair with the Gunners and then cemented now with family traditions 
and that wonderful image of young McKenna nipping to and fro, living every kick is marvellous. Great stuff. I'm sure many of you listening can picture that in your mind's eye, either chuckling and having a great smile. I'm sure it's conjuring memories that you may have had, either at Highbury or similar experiences. Love to hear your Boxing Day bangers accordingly. Do tweet us at Verulam Sports. Uh, but just quickly before we move on, and I introduce my first Boxing Day banger to the piece. Jason, it must be almost bittersweet in a way to reminisce about this Arsenal era. I'm not going to dwell too much on the current state of affairs. I'm certainly not going to get on any let's get Arteta out bandwagon. I think it's churlish. But nevertheless, when you list off those names there, Vieira, Lundberg, uh, you know, Henri himself, Burkamp. Seaman in goal, Tony Adams still in his prime. I mean, that was a force, wasn't it? It grew onto a dynasty, and it seriously is. I mean, they are all of those through several kind of iterations of Wenger's time there at the helm. So many Arsenal stars would make all-time Premiership 11s in most people's uh, debates, thought processes, irrespective of one's footballing allegiances. So I guess, Jason, it must be a touch bittersweet to recall so fondly that, that time. But nevertheless, what a time, what a moment, and what a brand of football that they were putting out there. To witness it live must have been truly special. Yeah. Every time that I went to, to Arsenal as a young fan, you know, and, and probably I was spoiled in a sense. Maybe I didn't realise how good I had it back then. But you'd go into each game confident. You'd think we can win this or, or at least we're going to put in a good performance, something that we can be proud of. Again, I won't touch too much on that. But another bit of data from this game. The goal that Arsenal actually conceded, as I said, they're on the 53rd minute, was the first time the Arsenal team had conceded a goal in over 600 minutes of football at high. That's insane. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that we talk about with Liverpool now, their amazing home run where they've not really lost the game. I think it's it's for quite a few years now. It's getting close to that Chelsea home record, which, you know, again, kind of like Lewis Hamilton we were talking about recently, nobody thought that anybody would come close to that you know, home record that Mourinho started and ushered in at Chelsea Fortress, Stamford Bridge. There is a bittersweetness, of course, Tony. Um, there was a bittersweetness, I think, from, I, I don't know, probably very soon after we got to the Emirates of knowing that Wenger was, was on the cusp of going after being such a great steward, holding us together, and the way that he left in 2018, you know, that was the beginning of, of real kind of heartache. Because for all the criticisms I have of the man, I still love him. I still think he did everything to create the modern club. And yeah, right now, going into each game kind of worrying if we'll even get a win against the likes of Burnley, Everton, Brighton. The, this is not the Arsenal of old. This is not nice. This is not a feeling that... I want to be having but you know mm -hmm. that that is it so yeah there is a real genuine high level of of sadness and bittersweet when I look at these memories and and I, when I discuss it with my family as well we kind of you know sometimes you put on the the goals of 2001-2002 season yeah. you see Arsenal taking apart teams and you don't have that anymore now and we just kind of sit there and and miss Highbury in many senses. It's mm. it's almost as if Arsenal lost itself once it moved 
from there um, because we've not won a league. We've won FA Cups, and that's great. And again, don't get me wrong, I'm not being... Uh, I'm not being rude about the FA Cup, but I think it was the sheer dominance that we had at Highbury, which kind of ties mm -hmm. it up. You know, we won all our league titles there. We've won most of our trophies there. It's going to take a time. I, I'm positive that Arsenal will get back on track and the Emirates will feel like a home. But for now, it almost feels like we're away every match because Highbury was the home. The Emirates just seems like this really nice stadium that we get to play in guess it show, goes to show be careful what you wish for uh but i know you're wishing for some great radio action ahead and we're here till 7 p.m on your boxing day sportcast after we go off the air seven o'clock there's a special this week seven till eight check out the alternative christmas country and roots show with Michael Higston. He is a real uh, genius at what he does, everything from the world of alternative uh, Christmas country and roots music for you. Better rockabilly in there too, I'm sure. Eight through 10, it's the Soul Show with maybe the coolest man on Radio Verum, Dave Ellis, keeping you grooving on your Boxing Day evening. And then you're in safe hands. 10 through midnight with the Godfather, Derek Staines, keeping you entertained on Saturday late date. Keep a date with 92.6 FM or whether you're listening or engaging through your smart devices or online. And I've also got to say, do check out on Sunday, the 27th of December, 4 p.m. It's the Radio Verum Panto, Sleeping Beauty. There's a little cameo from yours truly. But really, this isn't about Tony Rice. This is a really fantastic uh, version of Sleeping Beauty. You're in for a lot of fun. It's on 4 till 6 uh, tomorrow afternoon. So maybe after you've had a bit of a festive rest and let uh, a bit of the bubble and squeak go down, enjoy some uh, Panto fun on Radio Verulam. I want to say a big shout out to Daniel Berry, who put an awful lot of time, energy and skill into writing, producing, directing, and indeed editing this panto. Uh, it's an awful lot of fun. It's 4 p.m. on Sunday, the 27th of December. Again, on 92.6 FM, or of course, you can check it out on your smart devices or on uh, the award-winning Radio Verum website. Get involved, and you will in for a bit of fun for your festive uh, period. Oh, no, you're not. Oh, yes, you are. Check out... The Verum, uh, Radio Verum Sleeping Beauty Panto, written, directed and produced by the wonderful Daniel Berry. Uh, but moving on now, I'm going to provide my first Boxing Day banger. Again, I've got my own opinions on the, strain, uh, the strains and the stresses of the Boxing Day fixtures. Uh, and it is not an eminent tradition in my particular world. So I did a bit of research, I did a bit of scurrying back in time. And I tell you what, this is one of the best goals that you'll ever care to see. It occurred on Boxing Day, the 26th of December 2016. It was Manchester United beating Sunderland by three goals to one. Uh, it was a relatively unremarkable affair, really, all things told, except it was beautifully uh, uh, kind of made a little bit special through Mityarin. Uh, a Man United player came from Armenia. He had a relatively uneventful career at uh, the Old Trafford level. However, this goal etched himself into Man United folklore for a piece of skill, a scorpion kick, if you would, 
um, that left my man, Mr. Jose Mourinho, praising the beauty of football. Uh, I'm sure many of you might consider that a touch ironic, but Jose was wowed by this little piece of skill by the Armenian, Mitsuyarin. It was created by another man that I've heaped praise on in the past, uh, another Marino who's signing to Old Trafford, Zlatan Ibrahimovic. His cross was actually well behind Mityarin, but the midfielder's ability and just agility almost, you could say, adroitly adjusted his body and with an audacious piece of skill uh, was able to scorpion kick uh, technique the ball into the back of the net. It was the third of Man United's three goals and it was scored against current England number one goalkeeper, uh, Jason Pickford, who at the time was a Sunderland starter. This was a fourth consecutive win for Jose Mourinho's Manchester United and they totally bossed proceedings, dominating with 63% of the ball and having 25 shots on goal, not least of which that third and final scorpion kick special. But it was certainly Mkhitaryan's uh, effort, um, who came on as a sub, who provided that much-needed impetus, and of course, that goal. The game was significant as well, for it marked the very first return to Old Trafford for then Sunderland manager David Moyes, um, since he was sacked as Man United manager back a few years before this game in 2014. So uh, not necessarily a festive feast of fun for David Moyes, who saw his Sunderland team go down, totally dominated by three goals to one over a rampant Manchester United, managed by Jose Mourinho. But that game was made special by Mkhitaryan's efforts. Truly audacious, Jason. I'm sure you could visualise the goal and briefly your thoughts and indeed memories of that uh, effort on Boxing Day, a Boxing Day banger from 2016. <laughs> Yes, so this actually ties in with one of my great memories, um, but I'll, I'll come on to that in a second, because there was a real debate as to whether this was even the best scorpion kick of that season. Uh, it links in to, uh, into that. I remember being totally... I'm going to give away. my two pennies super quick, but I will allow you to reveal all very soon. <laughs> um, I don't think it was the best. I think the one you're going to talk about a bit later was better. <laughs> But it was the it was the first. Yes, I think it preceded that one by just a few days. So almost like we talk about sports and sporting records and trends, isn't it? Occasionally, somebody does something, and then everybody kind of feels like, well, if you can do it, I can do it better. So my two pennies, for what it's worth, Mkhitaryan's effort was not as good as the one you're going to unleash shortly. However, it does have the honour of being the first of its type, at least in the Premier League. Yes, it was. Absolutely outstanding. And when I saw it, I was gobsmacked. Uh, I was also sad because we'd been linked with Mkhitaryan for a long time from mm. Dortmund. He'd, he'd done some really magical, beautiful play. Obviously, he he didn't go into the kind of majestic levels that he did with Dortmund. And then when he, he actually did come to Arsenal and he paired up with Aubameyang again, there was almost a renaissance, a rebirth of his skill, but he never kind of went back to that same level but on that day my goodness that was that is a real kind of amazing amazing boxing day memory 
and it's one that lives on. You know, it's one that is folklore in terms of Premier League history. I think Mkhitaryan can be very happy with that because, you know, whatever happened with his career, he's still got that on on his CV, basically. And link to this then, we'll go through it. Probably the best goal I've ever seen live mm-hmm. in the flesh. And again, this is why I talk about festive fixtures. But this one happened, you know, a few days later on the 1st of January. Like a good bus, you know, you don't see any for a while. And then two come along at once. Well, we were spoiled with another world-class scorpion kick goal. And Ikaterian said, yeah, I can do that. And Giroud said, I can do it better. Honestly, yeah. I I was there at at the end that the goal was scored. I couldn't believe my eyes. Then I, I had a, a, like a tear in my eye at just how gorgeous it was. I was about to, to say a naughty word there. It was <laughs> astounding. It was beautiful. It was truly art on the pitch. And, and this was the thing about Giroud as well. So frustrating. The man could be a god on the pitch. He could He could produce sensational, sizzling skills that that made you wonder, my God, you know, is he is he as good as Pelé, Messi, Ronaldo? And then he'd go 16 games without a goal. Um, he was such a frustrating character sometimes at Arsenal. But honestly, yeah, I think in terms of goals that I've witnessed in person, it has to be the best ever goal. And I don't know if I'll ever see one as good as that. It, it brought me to tears at how good it was. I was also with my French family as well, which was quite funny. Mm-hmm. It was it was a whole day trip out. Nana McKenna was there. Dad, these cousins, we were all sat there watching. And they they went crazy as well, because obviously Giroud I mean, French. seriously, ooh la la, right, you know? <laughs> and uh, the celebration was in our corner. You couldn't ask for it better. I mean, the 6-1 thing with Leicester, we were up in the stands. We, yeah. were, we were far away. But I was I was almost in that memory there, and well, I was I was part of it. I didn't take part in the goal, I didn't assist Giroud, but I was part of the celebrations after. It was magic. I'll never ever forget that one. It's not quite Boxing Day, but I think we can sneak it in as a, as a banger for the Boxing Day fixtures because it's definitely festive, and it was. I totally agree. It and was look, a Christmas you know, miracle. Again, I agree with you, Jason. I think it was superior efforts. Although Mkhitaryan's did fall <coughs> literally on that uh, Boxing Day time. Five days later, Giroud's effort was sublime. Love your experiences of that. It was actually voted uh, beyond uh, Mkhitaryan's effort of that year as the 2017 FIFA's Puskas Award, awarded for the best goal award on planet Earth across all levels of football. So it's not just uh, your opinion or mine, uh, but that was popularly held and indeed a richly deserved award. Coming back to Boxing Day and Giroud there before we move things forward. Uh, again, coming back almost to the um, strange nature of the man and the frustrating nature of the man. There is a Boxing Day memory again against QPR where I think he was sent off um, for something of a headbutt. I'm not entirely convinced made full contact, but that's neither here nor there. But he really does have that kind of 360 as a player, doesn't he? You know, capable of greatness as we've witnessed and discussed um capable of scoring goals almost in a glut and then it's a famine 
And it seems to be the way with him at Chelsea as well. That almost seems to be his MO, his DNA, if you would. Uh, I mean, there's no doubt about it. He's an international class player. But as a fan, it's a frustrating one, isn't it, Gerard? Because he gives you everything. And sometimes that everything literally includes nothing, bizarrely. <laughs> I love that description. And it's so, so true. You can't criticise the man for his effort. That's the weird thing. Giroud was, was red, he was Arsenal through and through. It broke my heart seeing him go to Chelsea, especially tied up with that memory. But he loved the club, he genuinely did. Um, mm -hmm. We took him to another level. He did amazing things with Montpellier. I mean, they won the, the league in France that season single-handedly because of his efforts. You know, uh, Obviously, it was a team effort, a team game, but... His goals, you know, brought them to that level, undoubtedly. And, and that was almost like a Leicester City story, but in France, because they'd only been promoted the season before. So Giroud, I think, similarly to like Koscielny, were these star Arsenal players mm -hmm. who we helped mould, but were found by Wenger, uh, kind of emphasising the the old kind of mantra that he had of, we don't buy superstars, we make them. But yeah, he was so frustrating at times. I still have fond memories, though. I don't like to criticise him too much because, you know, during his time there, he saw a few FA Cups. He got us through, and he was very, very dedicated. I think he was less mercenary than some of the players that are currently there. Um, I think, you know, he did get that headbutt against QPR. 2014, if I remember, it was. But he was... On his day, he was he was great. Now, I don't like to, to badmouth Giroud too much. Uh, just before we finish the, the Giroud discussions as well, there's a great video on YouTube that I think people should check out. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek. It is really brilliantly edited together, though, and the music mm -hmm. works with it. It's called uh, Giroud Better Than Pelé, and somebody's put nice. together a compilation of his goals. And at the start, it said, in a... When Giroud retires and he's an old man, he will show his children this videotape and they'll think that he's better than Pelé. And so then they put the video in a camcorder and you just relive all these memories. The, the video, you just have to go watch it. I can't do it justice, but it's incredible. Hit us up with the link again, Jason. What, what, what should we, what should we uh, bang into YouTube to uh, so have just this put festive goodness in our lives? Giroud better than Pelé on YouTube. Um, because it will change your life. The, the video itself, the, the actual kind of music to it is great as well. So literally, Olivier Giroud, better than Pelé, question mark. It's from a person called DPM Football, and it's from three years ago, but mm -hmm. they're timeless goals. They are timeless goals, and the scorpion kick is in there. Of course, it is Tony. <laughs> 2017's uh, Puskas FIFA Goal of the Year. Great memory from a few years after Boxing Day. We've got some more Boxing Day memories in our Boxing Day bangers. Um, classic for you is going to be podcasted up. We're approaching the end of this week's sportscast on your Boxing Day. Uh, again, I'd rather hope you're keeping well, keeping safe and enjoying your festive periods as best as we can in the surreal year that is 2020. 20. Make sure you check us out on podcast form because there's plenty more Boxing Day bangers that we're going to provide your way. But I know you've got opinions on Giroud. Frustrating as he could be, world class as he was. Uh, tweet us at Verulam Sports. I know you've got your own Boxing Day bangers where maybe you were there, maybe you once upon a time, a little 
scrap of a lad at a game and it fed in the love of football that's never left you. I want your memories, your Boxing Day bangers, tweeters at Verulam Sports, email us to sports at radioverulam.com. I want to encourage you to keep with 92.6 FM throughout your Boxing Day. So much exceptional uh, radio for you to feast upon. There's a real special, a bit of an unusual one this week, seven through eight. The wonderful Michael Higston is serving up an alternative Christmas country and route show. So everything from country, from a festive feel to it, a bit of uh, roots to it as well. I'm sure there'll be a bit of rockabilly to keep you rocking and rolling on your Boxing Day fun, working off, of course. That's um, Christmas pud. Eight through ten, the Soul Show is hosted by the ever-cool Dave Ellis. Everything that you need from the world of soul, blues, and indeed R&B, check that out. Ten through midnight, my friend, the legend... Derek Staines, the godfather, as I call him, uh, will keep you entertained with Saturday late day, 10 through midnight. So keep a date with 92.6 FM throughout your Saturday Boxing Day evening. And then put a date in for tomorrow, tomorrow, 4 p.m., the Sleeping Beauty RV Panto. It's a little mini cameo from yours truly, but really it's about some of the other voice talents that we boast here. Uh, great work from Johnny Seabrook. Awesome work um, from uh, Daryl Andrews. The wonderful Kerry Cobb. The, and literally all your favourite RV presenters are in there. Have a laugh at us, uh, making merry and uh, providing panto goodness. And again, a big shout out and a thank you for the wonderful Daniel Berry for his writing, his producing, his direction, and of course the editing of that too. So tomorrow afternoon, 4 p.m., check out Sleeping Beauty, the RV Panto, uh, for you to enjoy. Make a date with us for next uh, Saturday, the first um, Saturday in the new year. And it's going to be Sportcast 6 through 7, where we are wrapping up our festive uh, feast of debates for you with our choice based on your decisions. And that is going to be on um, the, you know, uh, Christmas wrapping up and our favorite endings, our favorite ends to seasons across all sports. So that should be a lot of fun. Check that out. 6 through 7 next Saturday. Um, just quickly on this Boxing Day special, I want to quickly toast uh, from a different sporting perspective the legendary Boxing Day test matches, which happen yearly uh, at the MCG in Australia. Um, some great memories. Shane Warne got a hat trick in '94 against England. Uh, he also bagged his 700th wicket at his home arena, the MCG, um, where he clean bowled Andrew Strauss to go from 699 to 700 wickets for the great Aussie. I'm looking forward to this year's test at the MCG on Boxing Day, which this year features India versus Australia. Should be an awful lot of fun. Still plenty more of Boxing Day bangers and great memories ahead. Jason, what you got for us next? So moving on to my next one. And again, it's actually one that I actually got to go to. So as I said there, um, the tradition has been to go with my family to matches. And, and I'm not picky where I go to. I just like going on a boxing day mm -hmm. to watch a good football match. And, well, I was very lucky on this one. An eight-goal thriller. I went to a seven-goal thriller with Arsenal-Leicester. 
This Chelsea one at Stamford Bridge took the biscuit, though. I mean, this was vintage, or it should have been mm -hmm. vintage Chelsea, but this was the scene, uh, season that we saw Mourinho sacked. I mean, there's all sorts of questions. I thought it was inexplicable why they got rid of him that season. The, the enforcement of Shevchenko onto him was an aberration and an insult to one mm -hmm. of the, the chief creators of the modern Chelsea team. And this game itself, 4-4 in the end, but added to that 71-game unbeaten league run. Uh, it went on further, Chelsea did. But this was fantastic. This was ridiculous. This was peak Chelsea, or it should have been, but it wasn't because they got rid of the man that would have steered them probably to even more dominance, success. Maybe he might have made Ferguson consider retiring a little bit sooner. But looking at this, this was also a peak Aston Villa side. This was the season mm -hmm. in which Martin O'Neill had brought them from 11th to 6th that time around. They got Europe, they were looking good, they even pushed Champions League spots, but towards the end of the season, they dropped off just a little bit but these teams were were fantastic you know filled with talent looking at the Chelsea lineup we know how good they were during these uh early kind of 2000s uh towards the end of that first decade 2010s Czech Ferreira Alex Carvalho Ashley Cole you know one of the best left backs we have ever seen Kalu Essien Lampard Balak Joe Cole We've got John, Obi, Mikel, Pizarro, Shevchenko, Wright, Phillips. This was a team glittering with talent. And then Aston Villa can, can boast some real good talent in there as well. You've got Melberg, you've got Knight, you've got Maloney, you've got Rio Coca, Barry, Young, Carew, uh, Agbong Lahore. This was, again, another great Aston Villa side who probably kicked themselves that they didn't you know, secure their future after that because soon after that they got rid of Martin O'Neill and then it was kind of downhill from there. They they got worse and worse in the league, more terrible runs, and in the end they, they ended up getting relegated. Obviously they're back up now. I think the owners have a much more longer-term plan, but this was mm -hmm. Villa at probably the best that they'd been since their dominance a little bit earlier in the 80s. Now, what was interesting about this game, as I said, one of the agitators of the Mourinho situation, Shevchenko, did actually shine for once, but he mm. hadn't been shining at all that season. Um, but one of the rare kind of gaffes that we saw was from Petr Cech. You know, Mr. Consistent himself, one of the best, if not the best, Premier League goalkeeper of all time. He wasn't on form that day. And to add to the drama, to add to this amazing script. Well, we saw three reds from Knight, Carvalho and Ashley Cole late into the match, which actually gave away an all-important penalty. It was a real back-and-forth game. At times, Chelsea looked dominant. At times, Aston Villa looked dominant. And that's why I kind of say that this was Aston Villa at their peak, because they could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Chelsea in this game. They, they were that good. Avran Grant was at the helm, and obviously towards mm -hmm. the end of this game, he was very, you know, cut as a, as a an angry figure because four four was not the scoreline that he would have wanted. The game went on; it was competitive to the depth, 
and Michael Ballack got a late free kick, which should have won the game. But then Gareth Barry sealed the 4-4 scoreline after Ashley Cole got sent off for a handball, giving away mm-hmm. the all-important penalty. On the scoreline that day, Shevchenko with a penalty, and he also scored one in the 50th minute. But I can't even remember how many goals he scored for, for Chelsea. That might be a large proportion of them. Alex, who was a beast at long shots, he was he was a great, great player. And then Michael Ballack, of course. Maloney scored two. Lawson scored one. And Gareth Berry with that 90th minute penalty. I mean... I like this one because to the depth it was it was competitive. I liked it as well because I was there and obviously, you mm. know, I wouldn't let on surrounded by Chelsea fans, but I was cheering on Aston Villa. Uh and to be fair, I was a lot taller then, so I didn't need to nip in and out onto the stairwell. But again, this one has not not those romantic, beautiful memories of Arsenal. This is just, you know, a classic game that you've been to that you really really enjoy uh, I think I had a bovril in hand just just enjoying nice. the warmth of the football getting involved cheering uh, I tried very hard to mask the ability to to cheer when Aston Villa scored I had to rein it in I think that was one of my biggest memories of you know every time Chelsea scored I had to be like yeah this is great yeah I'm so happy and then when Villa scored I'd be like oh no this is this is dreadful guys what the hell is happening um so that that was quite the funny part because my family had bought tickets off a Chelsea season ticket holder. Mm-hmm. And we obviously got cross-examined as well by the people that usually sat next to them. They're like, yeah, oh, are you yeah. Chelsea fans as well? And we go, yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, but because Brilliant. of, you know, uh, even as a younger fan, I, I knew all the different players in the league. I could say, oh, yeah, I, I love Lampard. I, I think he's great. You know, lying through my teeth, of course. Um, but no, it was it's a great kind of memory throwing back to 2007. And it's just a fascinating one for me because it showed the capabilities of scoring from that Chelsea side. It showed mm-hmm. that they were still good. It also showed how good Aston Villa were. And it, it makes me question, because this is also the season that John Terry had that all-important slip at Moscow. If Mourinho yeah. had been in charge, could we have seen instead Chelsea's first-ever Champions League Ferguson only walking away from Manchester United with one Champions League. I mean, what an amazing, almost alternate history we could have had if Abramovich had just stayed faithful to the man who who made modern Chelsea. I I don't think that is over-egging it. Do you, Tony? No, again, you know my views on Jose. They're much documented. Um, But it does seem, in a way just to kind of look beyond that point, that Jose's MO, his uh, modus operandi, does seem to kind of come in, boom, create that success, which is why I value him massively, always will do, and then move on. So we'll never know whether that was something psychologically that was already uh, primed to explode. Um, we'll never no, we, I really hope. Uh, obviously, this is you know difficult to say because I appreciate your love of the Gunners, but I would genuinely love if he could upset the apple cart again and win the Premier League with Spurs. Although I have to say they look very uh, mediocre 
in their last performance that I saw. Um, but I'm, I'm just a huge fan. And he wins. He will win silverware with Spurs. But will he ever have that type of longevity of a Wenger, of a Ferguson? Can anybody ever in our modern era of football? I'd love your views on that. Do tweet us at Verulam Sport. But you know what, Jason? What a great game to be at. Uh, obviously, it must be difficult, again, to hold in those emotions. But I'm really interested to kind of get your opinion, just objectively. Because atmosphere... Um, the ambience of of a game uh, is so crucial to the experience and God willing, before too long, our fans can embrace and enjoy that again. But from obviously you enjoyed the Highbury experience and obviously that is always going to be um, so fondly recalled as an Arsenal fan. I get that. But here, just on this kind of standalone experience as an outsider looking in, how would you rate the Stamford Bridge experience in terms of kind of the atmosphere? Oh, yes. I think this was one of the things that maybe got Chelsea over the line in so many games and contributed to that amazing, amazing home run. Chelsea, I I always liked going there, whether in the way end as an Arsenal fan or just going there to watch matches. You know, I, I'm a huge, huge Arsenal fan, but I had such admiration for the mm-hmm. sheer amazing atmosphere that they created. Uh, I think they were one of the best ever kind of for, for that creation uh, of the atmosphere at, at the Stamford Bridge. It, it just, you know, the, the, there's nothing beats it. And I was taken mm-hmm. away by how brilliant they were. Um, it was sometimes deafening, the level of noise that they would create. They used to call Highbury the library because Arsenal fans generally didn't sing too much. Whereas, you know, from minute one to the 90th minute, you had Chelsea fans on their feet, screaming at their fans. And sometimes, you know, people kind of berate fans and say, oh, you're getting on Mm. players' backs. But I would often, you know, see, because the seats that we used to get were quite close to to the touchline, you'd see almost sometimes a player going like, go on, Lamps, or go on, pass it to him. And sometimes the player would look almost uplifted, like as if, you know, they weren't alone on the pitch. They weren't suffering Mm. or or, uh, having a terrible time out there by themselves. They had their team, but they also had 30-odd thousand people backing them. And during those difficult, difficult games, you know, during those what we would dub Fergie times, but Chelsea Mm -hmm. at that time was so, so good themselves at being able to win games at the depth. And when you're physically tired, when you're drained, when you're mentally at the edge because you've given Mm. it all for 89, 90 minutes, during those extra few seconds, having the the kind of crowd there willing you on, I saw such a difference with Chelsea. You know, Arsenal were brilliant. And obviously, uh, we've kind of seen the effect of crowd because of the downturn in home wins during this project yeah. restart period and I think Chelsea are one of the best I would say as well Liverpool uh, I think Anfield is the best in the country mm-hmm. and Crystal Palace have to get a shout out as well you know Selhurst Park I've had so many great memories there from visiting um, again bringing in another one of my memories not quite Boxing Day this was another New Year's Day kind of mm-hmm. fixture But I remember when Manchester City, during their centurion season, came to Selhurst Park. And Crystal Palace, everybody thought Man City will destroy them. Well, in that game, 
from start to finish, the Selhurst crowd were on their back, giving it their mm. all, singing from the start. And it all came down to an all-important penalty, which unfortunately Milivojevic missed. But it could have been so, so different. That Centurion season could have had another kind of mark on it. But that was the first time, uh, I think that season, that Manchester City had dropped points for a very, very long time, if at all. And Crystal Palace kind of showed a chink in the armour. They showed that, yes, this team is not unbeatable, that they can be stopped. It was a naught-naught draw, but it was so satisfying to watch. And I remember watching all the players come out as well at Selhurst Park. They go into uh, a car park by the by the fans so you can go meet the players. And every mm-hmm. one of them like clapped the fans. They, they were saying thank you to us mm-hmm. as fans, saying thank you for supporting us through that. They were battered, they were bruised, but they were very appreciative. And I think you've you've hit a really good point there, Tony, that fans matter so much to these teams. I can see it on on an emotional level, but the statistics back up your point of view that players miss fans. And we miss them too. Can't wait for them to be back, and God willing, it won't be too long into the future. Um, but coming back to this spectacular game that you were really lucky to be at, a Boxing Day banger, that's I think, more than appropriate. This four all classic, which also had two red cards and three bookings. So it literally had everything, this one, uh, including a, a rarity in a bit of a check error. Um, but my goodness me, what a villa side it was, Jason. You've alluded to it. Gareth Barry there in the middle, uh, keeping his call to slots home, that penalty equaliser. But, you know, this was a Villa side bidding for the double over Chelsea. And they've been really tormented by their kind of wing duo uh, in the earlier fixture, who would, again, do their thing in this fixture. So, again, Rio Coco uh, quite lived up to his full potential. Carew, uh, maybe not the greatest acquisition, but a man of mega talent, Lidane. Uh, great defenders at Melberg and Larson. Carson and Goal. Uh, what a team it was. And I guess... Similarly to how we now, uh, or we compared earlier on, that glorious era of Arsenal to the present now, I guess Villain fans are seeing causes for optimism given their current uprising through the leagues and Alex Smith doing well as their manager. But there must have been a sense under O'Neill here that that could have been. I know we've all got those ifs and buts and super sweet nuts, but that's a great team, wasn't it? On paper, that 11 of Aston anybody a good game on their day yeah and this was the thing I was worried as an Arsenal fan during that season that they'd overtake us for Champions League and again this is why I say Aston Villa will probably regret the manner in which O'Neill departed mm-hmm. from the club and and also the way that they managed the sales of the likes of Milner, Young, Barry they they didn't reinvest into the squad they they didn't build upon that because I understand Aston Villa weren't in the riches like Manchester City, Chelsea, Man United, but they were rich in the sense that they got all this kind of money. Uh, Arsenal, in a sense, did better. They kind of put money into a stadium. They they kind of grew a club from selling mm-hmm. the players. I know that obviously it hurt the club, but we still were getting Champions Leagues. We were still able to create amazing squads with that money and you know that there is no way of talking around it Aston Villa are a huge club they're one of the biggest clubs in the country they have a fairly large stadium they've got a 
big fan base in the second largest or, or one of the largest cities in uh, the, the country. I think that they had a lot of potential there that they wasted. And just one of the foibles as well as Martin O'Neill, which has now almost become the Norman football. But back then, he was one of the only managers to actually play with inside forwards at the time. Yeah. Uh, he played with a right-footed left winger and a left-footed right winger to be able to cut in and have shots. And I remember to saying with friends at the time, I thought how cool this was that, you know, in effect they had three or four kind of strikers on the pitch and we loved it. You know, this was at a time where you thought, God, Aston Villa are playing really good, attractive football. It was one of the elements about them that really pleased me. And Martin O'Neill had, had shown himself once again to be such an amazing manager. I think... Again, you know, he won things with Leicester, so we couldn't put him in the managers mm. that never won anything. But I think he's a perennially underrated Premier League manager as well. I think he was so, so good. So, you know, it could have been interesting, again, these big what-if-isms. If Aston Villa had just controlled themselves a bit monetarily better, if they'd invested in youth or more better players, maybe gone into stats or or just got a long-term project manager in, what kind of side could they have been with the huge kind of fan base that they already have? Well, it's interesting you say that. And again, always out of your views on these hypotheticals, tweeters at Verum Sports, your opinions on what could have been for the likes of Aston Villa and a whole heap of other teams if they'd have just made one slight adjustment. What kind of parallel universe could have been would we still be living in it, but only if? Love your views. Tweet us at Verulam Sports. But almost to illustrate that point, though, I'm going to take us back to Boxing Day 2008. Well, maybe the start of the Man City boom. Um, but it's not necessarily for that reason that I'm focusing on this game. Man City 5, Hull City 1. And with six goals in a game suggest thrilling on-pitch action, this game is more famous, or I think it's probably more pertinent to say infamous, for the surreal events which unfolded at half-time. Mark Hughes was manager of Man City at this time. And this was just as Man City um, were in transition. They'd recently been taken over uh, by the Abu Dhabi United group, headed up by Sheikh Mansour, uh, who has an estimated net worth of at least... 17 billion. I'm going to say that again because it staggers my fragile little brain. Sheikh Mansour alone has an estimated net worth of at least 17 billion and a family fortune of an estimated $1 trillion. I almost want to do my kind of Austin Powers impression there, but I'll spare everybody from it. $1 trillion. Goodness me. And I'll give him his dues. I know there's been lots of machinations and lots of uh, potential financial shenanigans that they were able to go to the highest courts in the world to uh, circumvent. But I will give them their dues. Whilst they've invested millions to build their team, they've also invested mega money in building a philosophy and a youth development system uh, there at Eastlands, which is the envy of the world. So it's, I think, a little easy to don the cynical hat when it comes to the Abu Dhabi United group. But 
there there was a vision. They've already achieved that goal. Yet, it, uh, granted, no Champions League to date, but multiple trophies in what had previously been a fairly barren trophy cabinet for Man City. Uh, but again, that's just framing matters. Again, building on the not what could have been, but what the what actually did occurs. Um, but really, again, this game was surreal, truly surreal. But just framing it again, coming back to that financial context, um, this takeover by the Abu Dhabi United Group had been completed in September of 2008. And they really signalled their intent from day one by bringing Rubinho to the club for a huge fee of £32.5 million. Ultimately, that transfer um, wouldn't really kind of live in the memory banks in the same way that perhaps your and I favourite Aguero might, or a De Bruyne in more recent memory. Or, you know, again, the list now is endless. But what it was, it was an absolute statement of intent. Um, this Boxing Day banger saw Man City move out of the relegation zone. Indeed, Hull came in to this match fighting for European places. So if we're considering surreal parallel universes of what might have been, who knows, had Hull been managed a touch differently, where their trajectory could well have gone. Certainly, two teams trending in two completely different trajectories. Um, we mentioned that um, uh, the star name, the marquee by Rubinho, he got a brace on the day, uh, but it was maybe a more unheralded player who was the absolute star in this Boxing Day banger. And Stephen Ireland was spectacular. He set up a goal for uh, Philippe uh, Casado, And um, actually, Casado got two, both of which Ireland created. And then Ireland would also tee up another one for the aforementioned Brazilian, Robinho, returning to the game for the first time in five matches, coming back from injury. Uh, it was 4-0 at half-time. And this is where this game gets really surreal. This is where, I don't even know if the banger is the right word for it, but just a, a Boxing Day memory. I'm sure this will be crystal clear in many people's minds in recent memory. If you haven't seen it, check it out online because it's just bizarre. Um, so furious that his team went down 4-0 at half time. Phil Brown, who was managing Hull, kind of summoned up the spirit of pantomime villains, really, and delivered his halftime team talk on the pitch, talking directly to his Hull players, who he forced to sit down almost like naughty, scolded schoolboys, and he would castigate them openly and publicly. Um, his justification for this was that the travelling fans had paid good money, that they needed to see him take action, and that he didn't want to shy away from that. And I actually can see the rationale, but the delivery of it was atrocious. And if you actually look at back, it is, it's comical, it's farcical to see these grown men sat in like almost cross-legged, you know, you, we're one stage we're removed from him getting the ruler out and slapping their wrists. It's absolutely absurd. And I'm sure now, if he looks back in hindsight, he must recognise um, the, the foolishness of it and how much of a fool, quite frankly, it made him look, even though he may well have had the best of intentions. Um, 
that's halftime speech didn't really inspire the whole lads. Um, the game finished 5-1. Hull sub Craig Fagan did pull a consolation goal back before Ireland, the star of the show, got amongst the goals himself to make it full-time 5-1. A Boxing Day banger for two reasons, though. The start, really, of the Man City revolution and the end, or the beginning of the end, of the Phil Brown era. And just, I think, one of the most farcical, absurd, surreal, pantomime-esque moments that I've ever seen in sport generally and certainly in Premier League history. Jason, can you recall that moment and your thoughts on it? I can recall it, Tony. And I agree with everything that you've said. The criticism at Phil Brown can't be enough here because part of the, the problem with a lot of teams, we see it with Mourinho, we've seen it with other managers, is this kind of digging out players in public. It never usually ends up well. Uh, in the moment, in the heat of the moment, it might seem like a, a hard man thing to do. But at the end of the day, it's only just going to breed resentment in the squad. Um, these things should be sorted out behind closed doors. Uh, and I remember it very clearly, just perplexed. I'd never seen it happen before. I don't think we'll see it again. I don't think we should see it again because it was mind-bending. And... I, I just question Phil Brown. I, I mean, he did an amazing job getting the team up to the Premier League, respect to that. But since then, they've kind of fallen by the wayside. As you said, this was such a good opportunity for them to, to almost establish themselves. And they weren't a bad side. There were some good players in there that they had some, some great kind of potential. But I think... After that, there was just kind of a loss of confidence from the squad there. And looking at the flip side, it's almost fascinating to see that team, the, the infancy of the Man mm -hmm. City revolutionary era. You had Joe Hart, who was going to be a mainstay, Zabaleta in there. Uh, but the rest of the team, most of them were replaced. But what I think is most fascinating is Vincent Company was there at yes. the time. And... I think originally, if I remember correctly, he was bought and played as a defensive midfielder. And he became to be, obviously, one of the best centre-backs in Premier League history. But just uh, amazing to kind of think of how his fate kind of came about. Uh, Stephen Ireland, Sean Wright Phillips, you know, Richard Dunn, all these kind of players unfortunately dropped by the wayside and we never really heard from them again. But another one that I wanted to point out on the bench, or, or two more actually, Kasper Schmeichel, who didn't yeah. impress enough to nail down that Manchester City slot. He was obviously kind of not usurped, but just he wasn't good enough to replace Joe Hart. And then the other one, uh, I mean, obviously Schmeichel went on to win a Premier League, but he never really reached the heights of Joe Hart. The other one was Daniel Sturridge, which I think is an amazing one on the substitute bench. A bit of a journeyman in the Premier League. You know, he went... Did great good things with Derby there, didn't he, Sturridge? He did good things with there. He did all right at Chelsea at certain times. And then he was part of what we call the, the kind of triple S of Suarez, Sterling, Sturridge at Liverpool, you know, during their peak. Again, almost, almost season, you know, with them, the Gerrard slip and everything. He's somebody that probably 
you know, looks back on his career at a load of question marks over it. If he'd stayed at mm. Chelsea, if he'd done a little bit more during that season with Liverpool, they might have broken it. If he'd somehow impressed more at Manchester City, he could have been maybe the striker alongside Aguero or the backup to him. And he could have had a long, healthy career there. So, you know, there's a lot to kind of take from that. I love this kind of selection, but also, you know, looking at the team in the sense of what these players became, but in the sense of it being a, a strange moment in Premier League history by itself. A 5-1 scoreline is always a great entertaining affair, but for mm -hmm. this ludicrous, in incredulous moment. But then I suppose one of the questions is, is they went in at 4 nil at half time they drew the second half in effect i mean maybe it had a positive effect and we're we're over egging this this uh this problem but i i think realistically you know the the whole city kind of project fell apart pretty quickly after that um and do you know what really interests me again is the the, the interesting dynamic between confidence arrogance ego and appreciation of a bigger project, right? And it's a bit of a paradox for me because, again, I'm on record. And I'm not deviating from it. I'm a huge, huge Jose Mourinho uh, advocate. And it wouldn't shock me to learn that what I'm going to describe about Phil Brown isn't is mirrored to some degree in my man, Jose, okay? Wouldn't shock me at all. But this is just, for me, hideous because you would not associate it with, for instance, Alex Ferguson, uh, I certainly would not with a Wenger, for instance, just two great managers, right? What I'm talking about is uh, a few weeks after this, there was a bit of a Soccer AM special and they went into um, the manager's office at Hull and it was, it was hideous. It was grotesque. It was like an eight-foot portrait, self-portrait of Phil Brown hanging in his office Okay, and it's almost like um, well, what's the movie with um, uh, uh, um, Ben Stiller, the, the Dodgeball? Um, basically, <laughs> if you've not seen Dodgeball, um, yeah, the, seen uh, Ben Stiller basically plays the villain of the piece, um, who's this very cartoon villain, um, Jim Owner, who has again lifestyle type um, portraits of himself all over his gyms. And it's grotesque. It is that grotesquery. Uh, again, it wouldn't shock me that Mourinho had something similar, if I'm dead honest, although I'm only speculating. Um, but, for instance, I just can't imagine a Ferguson ever doing that. Everything that was Old Trafford, everything from you mentioned in the past, Jason, the his relationship with the tea ladies to the physios through to the youth team, much documented, everything that was Old Trafford and that legacy, that theatre of dreams was Sir Alex Ferguson. He did not need a grotesque, ginormous self-portrait in front of him to validate his place at the club. And again, I don't want to denigrate Phil Brown. You've got to respect a man who's achieved uh, big things in relative terms at the highest level. You've got to do that. You've got to give that man respect. But that churlish reaction on the pitch for me, was absurd. And then to see, just a few weeks later, this gigantic framed, uh, not even a poster, a self-portrait in his office, it just struck me as a man on a humongous ego trip. And ultimately, 
again, appreciative of the irony of me getting angsty about that from Phil Brown's context, when I am, of course, one of the biggest advocates of uh, literally self-titled The Special One. Okay, I do appreciate that. But for me, say justified it, he lived it and he backed it up always. And if you're going to be doing things at this kind of like whole level building, building, then it can't be just about me, myself and Phil. It's got to be uh, about control and incremental gains. And those two things, Jason, taking an isolation perhaps could well be forgiven. But when you combine them, it just strikes me as a man on a little bit of a power trip who at that moment in time lost control. Just briefly your thoughts. I agree with you. I I didn't like him very much as a manager. I respected his ability to get whole city up, but there was quite a few incidents with him. It wasn't just that. It was uh I think he verbally abused Chris Hutton and he was fined for it. There was also the incident where he came onto the pitch after they'd survived by one point. And to be fair, he said it was his greatest achievement as a manager. And I, I don't criticise him for that because staying up in the Premier League with a side like Hull is a great achievement. But it was the way that he celebrated rather than kind of coming out with the team or, or saying, yeah. you know, celebrating together. He went out by himself brought a microphone and started singing uh, Sloop John B to the crowd. I mean, this was all about Phil Brown. It was the Phil Brown show with Hull City as, you know, the, the backup crowd. And mm. in the end, you know, obviously that was 2008, this incident that you described, and he didn't leave the club till 2010. So it wasn't like it was a nosedive immediately, but there was just so many elements about him, maybe. Maybe I just don't like the man, but I even found the fact that he had that weird mic thing that he used to wear during matches. I mean, what other manager does that? It just felt like it was a, a foible added for the sake of it. It, it wasn't useful. Yeah. Who's he talking to? I mean, he should be talking to the players as a manager. He shouldn't be talking to somebody in a microphone unless he's getting, you know, live updates and stats from Opta kind of saying, oh no, Paul McShane's misplaced seven passes, you should sub him off. It it was all about creating this image and I think for him, probably the biggest insult was the fact that he was sacked in 2010. He was probably thinking that he was going to go on to bigger and better. I think he, he was going on from Hull City to probably Manchester City in his eyes, yeah. whereas actually this self-obsessed nature at the club. I think after the 2009 staying up, which again, I will say, yes, it was a great achievement, Phil. You know, you did fantastic job there, but he should have made it about the club. That's what good managers do. Wenger, mm -hmm. Ferguson, uh, Klopp, you know, Guardiola to an extent. It's never about themselves. I mean, they probably know how good they are. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. But whenever they talk about the team, Klopp always talks about it's the team. We're not individual superstars. We work together and make ourselves a superstar team. You know, little mm -hmm. sentiments like that, they seem almost cheesy and ridiculous. But having that modesty, having that ability to, to set your own 
worries and and self-interest aside for the team is so important and I couldn't agree with you more Phil Brown just he, he irritated me a lot Tony <laughs> honestly this this photograph this portrait it was just grotesque and that that instant we've referenced on our Boxing Day bangers was absurd and I doubt will ever be replicated I'd love your memories on Phil Brown and the whole um incidents as they lost to Man City, who went on to great things. And I love your views on Man City. Man City fans, of course, get involved. Tweet at Verum Sports, your own uh, Man City banging memories. And those who maybe feel as though uh, the investment has uh, caused a little bad taste. Uh, maybe there were different ways to organise and run football clubs. Of course, there are. I want to hear your views on at Verum Sport is the quickest, the most efficient way to engage with us in the digital era. Always do, though. Drop us an email if you want to expand upon your thoughts and points. Love to hear from you. Email to sport at radioverulam.com. Keep involved. Keep involved with us next week on Sportcast, which is going to be the final uh, one of our three festive specials in the first uh, sportcast of 2021 next Saturday. But for now, thank you as always, saluting your wonderful work, your really uh, powerful and emotive anecdotes you brought to tonight's conversation, Jason. Put a big, big smile on my face. I know it's put a big, big smile on many others. So always saluting your wonderful work. Saying a big, big thank you for your engagement with us and for your time and company. Keep well, keep safe, keep listening. Good night, God bless.